See, God is to be experienced. And uh, one of my prayers as I study and, and do my devotions, I, have, uh, I, I read it from another individual, and, uh, and I've adopted it. And, and one of my prayers is, Lord, take your written word off the pages and make them a reality in my life. The written word is his history. But his living word is what he wants me to what? Experience. And I pray that you want to experience him. Not just have a chronological, historical view of him. But daily, somehow, some way, you sense his presence and you know that he's there and that he's working in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are your people who have been called by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and saved by his precious blood. For he is the one, O Lord, who has presented us unto you. And you, O Lord, have received us as your children that we have the privilege of crying out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa. That we have the privilege of walking close with you. We have such a privilege that we have the ability to live a life worthy of the calling of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit work in us and through us and help us, O oh God, to be a people who are willing to glorify you, whether it be in life or in death. That we can truly say what Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, that, Lord, we look for something far more in death than what we have received in life. But while we're living, Lord, help us to live for you. Help us to learn how to die to self and to live strictly for you knowing that all this stuff around us is only temporal and it's not going to last. But we will leave here and leave it. But what we take with us are those individuals who you've given us privilege to share Christ with. Lord, I pray that you continue to minister to us. That we might minister to other people. And Lord, as we look at John today, help us to see ourselves. Help John to somehow reflect us. 
that as we look into John's life, we're also looking into our life. And we're hearing what you said to John, that you're saying it unto us. So Lord, minister to us. May we hear from you. May you, oh God, touch each and every one of us. May you inspire us. May you excite us. May you do the work which you said that you will continue to do in us until we see Christ. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Ah, this thing called salvation in the churches is something that I'm just stuck with right now. And uh, I'm enjoying it because John is that pre-part of that. And he is that part that we see beforehand because he is the forerunner. And John is that individual who helps us to see Christ in a much clearer manner. Because there's two different ministries that take place. And he shares it with us. At first, he didn't even recognize it. And John's questions that he's going to ask are not from the area of doubtfulness. It really is from the area of showing his faith, revealing his faith, opening up more than ever before. God is moving John off the scene. And remember, John's not old. John's just six months older than Jesus. If Jesus started his ministry around about 30 years old, that's about where John is at, 30, 31. That's where John's at. But John is going to experience exactly what he said about God. He's going to experience that Christ really has to become greater and he becomes lesser. He's really going to experience that a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. John's story is in both Gospels, Luke and Matthew, one in chapter 7 in Luke, another in Matthew 11, and it's there. And John is living out his own words. How many of you have the opportunity to live out your words when you quote scripture? That you have the privilege of seeing it come to pass. Um, I was studying one morning and and God spoke to me and strange part about it, I was studying about Adam. And I never saw Adam as a grandpa. And um, God just started pouring his message in. 
So I told a person that I was going to speak this message and they replied back to me, uh, you haven't been asked. And I said, no, but I'm going to speak it. And we'll see. About three weeks later, four weeks later, they came and they asked, would you speak for us on this day? It's strange that when you're in that relationship with God, he will show you things that are yet to come in order to even prepare you. He'll show them to you. John is going to get a little glimpse of what yet is to come. That is different than what his ministry was. But John then had to also apply why what he did was what God ordained him to do. What another may do is what God ordains them to do. And in ministry, it changes. In Luke, when you start off, there's two healings that take place. In Matthew, it lets you know that Jesus was teaching and preaching. And the two of them are sharing just a little bit of what was going on in Jesus' ministry. The centurion's servant is healed. And then as Jesus is going through this strange little town, he puts his hands on the coffin of a widow's son and he calls him back from the dead to life. Now, John's not out. John's in prison when all this is taking place. John was used to being in the wilderness. John was used to roaming. John was used to moving. And now John is in one little place, a cell block. He's in prison. John couldn't hear for himself, really, what was really going on. Nor could John see for himself what was really going on. He hears about the teaching of Jesus. He hears about the healing that is taking place. But yet, he himself doesn't see it or hear it so when we pick up in Luke chapter 7 it says John's disciples told him about all these things John's disciples is telling John about what's going on on the outside 
And all John could do was hear them. Hear them talk about the healings. Hear him talk about Jesus raised somebody from the dead. All they could do is report to John, and all John could do is listen on what is Jesus teaching? What is Jesus saying? That's all he could hear. So in Luke in 7 verse 18 says, John's disciples told him about all these things. Go over to Matthew 11. Because all John could do is hear. After Jesus had finished instructing, Mark got a lot of humming. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples. When he heard, he didn't see, he only heard. He only heard. It's great when you can both what? Hear and really see. The only thing John could do was hear. And when you hear, you have to make a decision. Am I hearing the truth? Am I hearing a story that's embellished? Am I hearing the main facts about the story? Do my mind wonder? Did it really happen that way? Could it have happened that way? Did Jesus do these things? So it becomes questionable for John. John's time in prison is about 10 months. About 10 months in prison. His information is not from what he personally hears or sees. He only hears, and his question is, is it true? Is it true? Is it true? Remember that old statement? I won't believe it till I hear it from the horse's what? Till I hear it from the horse's mouth. And John wanted to hear it, in a sense, directly from Jesus. Not the reports that are coming by his disciples, per se. And therefore, John is going to form his own question to be able to discern whether or not Jesus really is the Messiah that he's looking for. Now, understand this, and you and I need to understand it. There was a question 
there was a statement stated of a question that President Bush asked his pastor. I don't know if any of you heard it or not. But the question the newscaster stated was that Bush asked his pastor this question. Will I see my daughter and my wife in heaven? Will I see my daughter and my wife in heaven? Now, you can play on that all day by the question that he asked. But one thing that Bush made clear on that he understood he was going to heaven. But his question is, will I see my daughter? Would she still be that little three-year-old or six-year-old when, when she passed? And will I see my wife in the same likeness? Okay. We can't really answer that. But we can answer, yes, we're going to see each other, but we're Elaine be like Elaine? Will I be like I am? Or will there be something different about us? And John wants to ask the question. Now, it's okay to doubt. What God doesn't want is a double-mindedness. Doubting will always lead you to searching if the doubting is really coming from the heart and is saying, I want to be sure of this. That I want to be sure of it. And a lot of Christians today, they're not sure. They're not sure if they're saved, so people are trying to convince them that they're saved. Understand this. Nobody on earth can convince you that you're saved if the Holy Spirit doesn't do it. The same one who convicts you of your sin is the one who has to assure you of your salvation in that relationship. God can handle our doubts. If our doubts lead to questions, and if the questions are sincere, if they're honest, if they're genuine, or in other words, are they straight from the heart? Are they straight from the heart that you really want to know God and God's will for your life? and plans for your life. John's response to what he has heard. He says there in verse 19. Let's finish up with 18 because his response is he calls two of them. Now, I doubt those were the only two that came to see, but it says he called two of them. He chose two people out of all his disciples. And because he says he's called two, I will assume that there was more than what? Two. But the two he called, 
if I might illustrate it in this fashion. When Jesus went up to the transfiguration, he didn't call them what? All 12 to go up with him. He just chose a couple of them what? To go with him. He didn't try to take all 12. And we believe the ones he took up on the hill of transfiguration were the ones that were close to him. That had a different mindset towards him. And he took them with him. John calls two that he's going to send because he trusts them. As I was going through this, I, I kind of looked at part of my own little value. Whenever I leave to go out of town, I always tell somebody, see about Elaine. Watch over Elaine for me. Because while I'm gone, I could be in a car accident. While I'm gone, something else could happen. I don't trust her into just anybody's hands. But I always ask somebody, I'm gone, kind of watch over him. And that's somebody that you have to trust who will not take advantage of what? Of the situation or somebody that you trust that would really care about someone you really love and care for. And John called these two disciples because I think he can trust them. They will say explicitly what he says. Won't change the question. Won't sugarcoat the question will state exactly like John asked them to explain and to ask the question. These two, I believe John can really trust, and he does. And John sent two to Jesus with this question. Are you the one? Are you the one? Are you the one? So in verse 19, he says, He sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, now John wants to be certain that Jesus is the one. Well, some of us may say, Well, didn't he know he was born of a virgin? That's his cousin. Wouldn't he know that? The things, just the little things that he experienced with Jesus maybe before he went into it. Wouldn't he know that? John is saying, I want to be certain. I want to know for myself. See, there's a huge difference between me trying to persuade you that you're saved and you know it for who? yourself. 
And I believe there's a lot of Christians today that don't know it for themselves. They've just been pronounced saved. But don't know it for themselves. What it really is to be saved. And to experience salvation. Should we suspect someone else? And, and John is willing to ask that question based on this. God promised a Messiah. Are you the one? If not, I'll keep on looking and believing that God's going to send him. It wasn't going to squash his faith if Jesus would have said, I'm not the one. Because John would have kept believing God. And he would have looked for the other. And he would have kept looking. Why? Because God had made the promise that he would send him. That he would send him. How many of you, because it doesn't fit your timetable, is not the way that you want it, begin to doubt God? We all go through that, don't we? And, And the whole process is still to believe who? Believe God. And sometimes you got to believe God in the darkest hours. And John is in a dark hour of his life. And it's difficult sometimes to believe God when the situation is not like you want it to what? To be. And what John is saying, I'm going to believe God. If you say you're not the Messiah, I'll just keep looking. Because God promised it. And I'll just have to keep waiting. But I'm not going to lose hope in what God has promised. John is asking Jesus, are you the real deal? Are are you a fake? Are you just another forerunner? Are you just another preparer? Or are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Messiah? Go to me to 2 Timothy 1.12. 2 Timothy 1.12. Listen to what Paul says. And grab that Grab this little part for yourself. Somebody might be saying, well, God testified to John that who he see the Spirit land upon. But Scripture doesn't tell us that the Spirit will come in the form of a what? Of a dove. He just tells us he gives John a little peek, but the window's not wide open. 
John sees a little bit, but don't see it all. But John is asking, would you make this clear for me? Are you the one? Are you really the one? 2 Timothy 1.12. This is what Paul says. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet, I am not ashamed. Because I know whom. I know what? Yeah. I know whom. How many of you know whom you are believing in? How many of you really know the one you're trusting in? Yes, we're believing he's coming back. And and yes, it can look like it's the time, but it may not be the time. Yes, some things are happening that never happened before, but no man knows the day or the hour. And what we hold to is the promise that he's coming. Even though we try to read the signs, what we hold to is that he said he's coming back. That's what we believe. That's what we trust in. That he really is coming back. Yes, the times are bad. This is happening. Fires are happening. Floods are happening. All this stuff is happening. More people are doing evil than we've ever seen before because the population is much bigger. But what we hold to is that Jesus promised that he's going to return and receive me, receive us unto himself. That's the promise. That's the promise. That's what I hold to. The signs are all good, and yes, we can look at when World War I took place, they thought the end was coming. World War II, they thought the end was coming. And now what we're seeing, we're seeing, boy, it's here. It's okay to say it was closer than what it was, because it is. But I still don't know the day and the hour which is going to take place. But I hold to the promise, because I know him. He's coming. And Paul says, I know whom I have believed. I know him. I have believed and am convinced. Are you convinced? See, a lot of Christians today are not convinced. And what happens is that you try to spend too much time trying to convince. And the issue is, the person has to know. And we say it correctly in this manner. Personal relationship. Are you having a personal relationship with your Lord, with your Savior? Are you in a personal, daily, touching, feeling relationship with your Savior? Are you in a communication daily with the one who has saved you and bought you with his precious blood? Are you communicating with him daily? And is he communicating with you? The whole process is I know. Then when you go to Romans 1.16, he says, it is the power of God. How would Paul know it was the power unless that power 
was something he experienced and he knows the working of the Holy Spirit in the convicting and the saving. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God unto what? It's something he experienced. Something he knows about. And he's not ashamed of it. Because the work has been done in him. And he realizes the power of God that can be released in his life because of the gospel and the word of God. And then in Romans 8 9, he speaks The Spirit of God lives in you. This is amazing here. Tell me something. Have you ever had one of those real, real fine, fine splinters in your hand? Do you know that splinter's there? <laughs> and sometimes you have to get a magnifying glass to what? To see it, because you can't just see it with your eyes. You've got to get a magnifying glass to see that little thing, but you know when you touch that spot, something's there. How many of you see what's in your eye? But you know something's what? You feel it, you know it's there. That is the Holy Spirit in us. Sometimes I don't know how that little splinter got there, but it's there. Because I feel it, I know it. Because the Holy Spirit speaks to me, because how he convicts me of my sin, how he works in my life, I know that he's there. I don't see him. And what I, oftentimes when I flush out of my eyes, I don't see it. But I feel the difference in my eye. I feel the release that is not there no more. That's the Holy Spirit. He's there. And he says, if you have not the spirit of his, you're none of his. How plain is that? If you have not the spirit, you're not saved. <laughs> but if you have the spirit, and you know you have the spirit, you're what? You're saved. Not by some man trying to convince you that you are, but that the Holy Spirit who dwells in you allows you to know that you are. Because he bears witness with your spirit that you are. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? Do you see anything new and different in your thinking, your talking, your behavior? Do you see something different about you? Not what other people say, because God's already told us. We only see what? The outer. But God sees what? The heart. And the issues of life come from where? Out of the heart. Are the issues of your life changing 
And are they different? Are they new? Because of what has happened to you. Jesus gives a view of his ministry in Luke 7 through 22. He begins to share with them a little bit about his ministry. And John, only thing John can do is look back and say, Huh? Why? That was not his ministry. Jesus' ministry. Now there's a word that's left out. But yet it's a mighty word in John's ministry. But it's left out in what we see of Jesus' ministry as he explains it. Because what he's telling us is a transition going on. There's a contrast, yes, between the two. What John's looking at. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But Jesus says in 722, he begins to share with them from this perspective. He says, so he replied to the messengers. So they've asked him, are you the one or should we look for another? And his reply in the message was not just a straightforward answer. I am the Messiah. He doesn't give him that kind of an answer. Why? When you get over into Acts 5, you hear when they're dealing with Peter and John. Gamaliel says, We've had others who've come professing that they were what? The Messiah. We've had other men stand up and say, I'm the Messiah. Jesus does not say he is the Messiah here. What he shows is a different work that cannot be done unless God's involved in it. Understand this about ministry. It cannot be done unless God is involved in it. So he says to him in 722, he simply put it in this fashion. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. Now, the question that you want to ask yourself is this. Only thing they're going to do is go back and say the same thing that what? That the others have already been what? Saying. What's the difference here? John was hearing from all his disciples. Now he picked two who he sent with a question. And they come back with an answer. Two that he trusts. Two that would go directly to Jesus, not stand back off and just see what's being done. But two who would go directly to him. And that's why it's repeated again. 
that they would go and they would ask, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? The exact question that John is asking, but he put it in the hands of two. And by two, that would be established as a witness because both of them are going to hear. And one of them will be able to say, uh, 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 wait, wait a minute, John didn't ask us to ask exactly what you're saying. This is what John said. So they were also there to also help correct each other if it was not stated what? Exactly the way John wanted it. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The leopard is cured. The deaf they hear. The dead is raised. Dr. Barry brought an excellent message some years ago on this last one. And he did it at the request of Dr. Boone, who was president at that time. And Dr. Boone asked him to deliver this message. And it was simply this. The poor will hear the gospel. That the poor will hear the good news. The poor would hear. Because who is neglected more than anybody else, even in our society today? The poor. All of us want to get away from who? The poor. No one wants to live in the ghetto. Nobody wants to live where the poor folks live. No one wants to build a church where the poor folks are. The church gets left there. The most educated individuals who declare the gospel and so forth, they don't want to do that in the among the poor. And he says, tell him the good news is preached to the poor. The good news is preached to the poor. That's important to put in your head. The good news is preached to the poor. Let me share something with you. One of the things that really hurt church life was this thing called liberal, and then when we coined it, and there's a big difference between a liberal gospel and social gospel at work. There's a big difference. Social gospel at work sees the needs of the people and go to the needs of the people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Understand something here, what is left out. And this may have what may have puzzled John a little bit. I was called to go into the neighborhoods and I was called to cry out, Repent! 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 
I'm getting all these messages back. But guess what I'm not hearing? I'm not hearing a cry to the people about what? Repent. Confess your sins. I'm not hearing that. But I'm hearing, yeah, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. I'm hearing about all these healings, but I'm not hearing about this area of repentance. I want to bring something to you. Listen to me closely on this. And then I will say to you, look into life, see if it's true, and if it follows. John taught repentance. Jesus did healing. Now, we can say he did that to establish who he was. I think it's more. When confession takes place, when sin is confessed, healing takes place. Healing will follow repentance and confession. If you want to see it in play, look at James. Before you pray, there must be what? Before you anoint what is taking place, that you repent and you confess one to another that you might be healed, that you may be healed, because healing follows repentance and confession. And a lot of young Christians don't understand that. It's not about you just praying, asking God for this, this, and that, and that, and put my life in order, and, and this and that. The question is first, have you repent? For when you repent it, then the healing comes. And the healing is not always the physical healing. It can be the emotional healing. It's what is healed on the inside. It's your ability to be at peace that you can function. The healing comes in so many different ways. And here's that confession. Repent, then the healing. John's thing was to teach what? Repentance. Jesus may be showing what takes place when repentance takes place. We could put it in the Old Testament. If my people who are called by my name will first do what? Confess. I will what? I'll heal their land. I'll heal their land. Why? The confession and the repentance of our sins have to come before the healing takes place. What is the difference between John's ministries and Jesus' ministry? John didn't heal. Nowhere do we have on record that I know of that John healed anybody. But John taught repentance. Repentance. Could Jesus' ministry also be revealing? When true repentance takes place, healing takes place. Healing takes place. Now, in that last little verse there, not so much towards John, when we get into verse, let me get my eyes straight, 23, he says, Blessed is the man 
who does not fall away on account of me. Blessed is the person who don't fall away because of me. And sometimes as Christians, we back off because of what God is demanding too much. And what we're doing, we're backing off because we believe he's asking us to do something that's too hard, too difficult. If there's one thing you need to learn, it's simply this. God never asked you to do anything without equipping you to do it. And understand this principle. He'll never trust you to do it on your own. Because he knows that we are frail. He knows our sinful nature. Therefore, his promise is, he'll always be with us. He'll always be with us. Go to John 6. And pick up with me in verse 60. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Blessed is that man who believes what God's word says. And don't fall away because of the hardness. Don't fall away because of the difficulties. Don't fall away because of this or that. Pick up in verse 60. He says, On hearing it, many of his disciples says, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does, the, does this offend you? Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, the Spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. And that's the part of our life that's always being challenged. Do I believe him? Do I believe him? Not always just in the area of salvation. Do you believe that God will provide for you? Do you believe that God will take care of this situation or that situation? And sometimes you just have to wait on God and see how God's going to handle it. And he has a way of dealing with every situation. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and would, what, betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless the Father has, what, enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, pick up in... Let's, let's look at 67.2. You, do you want to leave too? Do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? That's profound. To whom shall we go? Why? 
you have the words of what? Eternal life. Peter understood that much. That Jesus has the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of who? Of God. Lord. What a statement to be made. There is that contrast, however. Understand this about John. John, in a sense, is the last Old Testament prophet. Silent for 400 years. And then comes this one crying in the wilderness. Repent! Repent! John never referred to himself as a prophet. Jesus does. But he is the last Old Testament prophet. Why? He's looking for the Messiah. He's looking to the cross. After the cross and the resurrection, we're all looking which way? Back that way. We're not looking for the Messiah because we know who the Messiah is. What we're looking for is the return. John is the last to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus. Contrast in life before Jesus and the life in the fullness of Christ after the cross and the resurrection. 24 and 28, how John reviewed. And I believe there's two views here, of men and of God. How John is viewed among men, how he is viewed by God. You're my messenger. You did your job well. There's none greater than you. In that sense of doing your job as the messenger. You completed your job. Every task assigned by God is important no matter how little. And out of every little task comes greatness. In what form? In faithfulness. And the question is, will you be faithful no matter how little the task might be? Will you be faithful? And John was faithful to his task and his questions that he sent was showing forth his faithfulness. Are you the one to come? Are you the one? Or do we look for another? I'll keep looking if you're not the one. Why? Because of the promise of God that he would send a Messiah. The person with a little task, however, can be greater than John. But go with me to Luke 17. As a young man, this is one of my favorite verses. And uh, 
Vernon Lewis used to just bring us back to it constantly. Because he would hear sometime from younger folks that complaining. And what Vern brought to our attention was this. If you're a servant of God, don't look for some great grandeur. Understand this. It's your duty to do it. It's your duty to do it. Therefore, Jesus says, and he didn't say this until after his disciples left. When John's disciples left, he begins to explain how great John is. John didn't have fine clothing. He didn't live in a big house. He didn't eat the finest food. But John was faithful to his task. John was faithful to his task. And he says, he is a prophet. The greatest born among who? Women. But then he says, even that least one who comes in can wind up being great or greater than John. Pick up with me in verse 7. And ask yourself this question as you go through it. What's my duty, Lord? What's my duty, Lord? Lord, you hear me when I say my back hurts. You hear me when I say, Lord, I'm tired. You hear me, Lord, when I say, I think I've ran enough today. You hear me, Lord, when you hear me say, I don't want to be bothered with no one else. Lord, you hear me. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or, or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me? Can you imagine what some of these folks would say today? <laughs> you better get your own. You better wait on yourself. You better help yourself. I'm done. It's over. I'm not doing no more. Prepare my supper. Get yourself ready. And wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything, you were told to do should say we are unworthy servants we have only done our what? 
Yeah. Let me put that in light sometime when I'm talking with parents about their children. Because we have gone into this thing now and you see it in our whole society. If the boss isn't looking for a big bonus at the end of the year, he may not give you 100%. So what a lot of corporation bosses look for, even though they're making 15, 20, 30 million already, they still look for another 15, 20 million as a bonus because of what they've done. Children, we treat the same way. Oh, we put a star up here for you if you do this. We give you this if you do this. Like Grandma, I give $5 for how much? I send you to school to learn. You're just doing what you are supposed to do. Learn, get A's and B's. That's what you are supposed to do. But we give out rewards for doing what is your duty and your responsibility to do. And the Lord says, John is great. Why? He fulfilled his task. No bonuses, not a lot of extra. And didn't even say it before the two who came because he didn't want it to go back to where? Because we have a problem allowing our head to do what? So after they leave, after John's disciples leave, Jesus begins to tell the rest of them how great John and that he did it basically because he understood he was given life for that purpose. You have been given life. And that life has a purpose. To serve the Lord. To serve the Lord. To serve the Lord. And whatever that task might be, when you do it faithfully, God says, they are great. They are great. They are great. And yes, Never get stuck on your task that God can't move you and bring somebody else in. Because that's the reality of life. And that's what's happening with John and Jesus. Jesus didn't do ministry the way John did it. John didn't do it the way Jesus did it. But in God's time, ministry changed. And we see ministry differently. Now, if you really want to see it, 
go and study the apostles and what countries and where they went, and you'll see ministry differently. Mother Teresa, oh, she's a Catholic, but boy, when you look at her ministry and what she did, boy, it's great. It's great. When you look at the one Booth started Salvation Army, still going on. It's different, but boy, it was great. And it's still going on. The things of God somehow have this longevity. Because God isn't interested in the short run. He's interested in the long run. And the question would be, are we faithful? Are we faithful? John, you're great. Gives us something to shoot at. And then we can get to John, then we got Jesus. We got Paul. Follow me, for I follow who? Jesus. But I first got to shoot where? Get to where Paul is. And then beyond Paul, Jesus. And get to a place where you just say, it's my duty. It's my duty. It's my duty. A lot of us don't like that. It's my duty to do. I shouldn't have to get a bonus to do what I'm already getting paid to what? To do. And I take all my grandkids sometimes to that verse. This is your duty to do. Don't need to bribe you. Don't need to promise you something more. Because life really doesn't work that way. And sometimes I think we set things up for failure because they're looking more for the bonus and the other stuff than them understanding. This is your duty. This is your duty. John only did his duty of what God purposed him to do to be a messenger. And now Jesus is doing his and bringing about the healings that follows confession and yet going to the cross to be able to complete what the confession and the healings are bringing about. Good. Good. You could see me dance in my office that time. When I'm down in the basement and I had to get up out that chair over a thought or something that God has just dropped in. Just amazing. Just amazing. I was sharing with Roscoe and Greg a thought that God just dropped in for the Christmas message. You know, and uh, the whole process. You 
have an experience with Jesus and know him. And that's all John was asking. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior? Or do we look for another? Amen. Father, we just thank you and praise you that you have made it possible for us to know you. You have made it possible that we can experience your love, that we can experience even your discipline in our lives. And know when we're being disciplined and know when we're being loved and cared for and know when we're being used in a mighty way for yourself and for your glory. Lord, we're so thankful that you're not a God far off. But you are a God that's right here with your people. That you are indwelling our lives. You're speaking to us. You're loving us. You're caressing us. You're encouraging us. And out of your encouragement comes a flood of questions that we have that all we can do is put those questions before you and then watch you answer them. Watch you work and you do. For you're the only one who can really satisfy our souls. For you are that water that we can drink and thirst no more. You are that meat, that Lord, that doesn't perish You're that bread that comes from heaven. Lord, you're all that we really have need of in this life. Bring us to that place that we hear you answering us. Answering us through your word. Answering us through others answering us in prayer. Let us know that we have such a privilege of experiencing the Messiah, the living God. In Jesus' name.